Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 26 of our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 11th of July. And Leon, what have we got on this week? Well, we're starting off with a terrific interview with Sam Allett. He's the Managing Director of the Reckon Accountants Group. And he's going to be talking to us all about accounting and the cloud, and it's the cloud really is taking over the accounting and revolutionising it. Absolutely, yeah. It's changing the face of accounting, really, turning a lot of them into CFOs rather than just number bank. That's right, CFO of every company. So let's talk to Sam Allett. Sam Allett, uh, Reckon One has been released. You run the accountants group for Reckon. Uh, what implications does it have for the accounting industry? A lot of implications, actually. Leon, it, um, Reckon One is a cloud-based accounting application. So first of all, accountants get to interact with their clients on a live basis. Uh, no more transferring of data. So if, if the accountant had clients on a desktop application, that client would have to get the file into the accountant. That could be at year end sometimes. Sometimes it could even be months after year end. So now what the accountant gets to do is actually interact with their clients on a live basis or as often as they choose. And that could even open up new charging models for the accountant because traditionally accountants haven't been a, uh, there's a bit of a trend called virtual CFO. So accountants haven't had tools to really play that virtual CFO role. A virtual CFO two years ago actually virtually had to get up out of their chair and go to a client site and, and sit there. Now they can do that sitting at their desk accessing something like Reckon One in the cloud. So potentially this means accountants could actually create a premium for their service. Absolutely. They can, they can actually do more because they're going to spend less time getting the data and more time accessing the information, reporting on their clients' financial affairs. They can actually not only have a different charging model, they can add additional financial services to those clients. So the accountant could oversee the progress on, on an account online just as the his his client was inputting information or doing a deal exactly right i've got a a bit of an example i've used on stage before where i've spoken of a, a visa pay wave transaction a simple tap and go visa pay wave updating let's say your nab account for the business they use bank data feeds that bank data feed gets sucked straight into reckon one if that happened today and the accountant happened to log on tomorrow they're seeing the effect of that transaction directly in the client's accounting system. So you're exactly right, Gary, real life access to information and reporting. So in effect, what this does is it turns every accountant potentially into a CFO for every small business. Potentially, it definitely does. So the, in effect, you're changing the role of the accountant in that fashion, but bringing him much closer to the operation of the business, not just looking at a balance sheet or a set of accounts. Yeah, there's, there's, there's commentators out in the market that talk about compliance is dead, squeeze on compliance. Uh, unless you're doing business advice and adding value to your clients, your accounting practice is going to be out of business. I, I personally am not such a strong believer in that. I think that's quite a negative or fear-driven approach. My view is the tools are finally caught up for the profession to give the service and value to their clients they want. I've, I've been working with accountants for well over 15 years. My dad's a chartered accountant, so I've grown up with one. And, and they've always said the same thing. I want to get access to my client's information, do the compliance work so I can add more value to my clients. And now 
tools like Reckon One and other tools that we, we, we deliver and other people deliver to the market, finally the profession can do that. But there, there is an issue. I mean, uh, most of the um, accounting practices are run by people in their 50s and some in their mm-hmm. 60s even. A lot of them are not that across technology. There would be a fair bit of resistance out there, I would imagine. This is very much the way of the future. Yep. How do you convince an accountant in their 50s who exposure to technology might be limited to um, reading stuff maybe on, on the internet and yes. uh, email? Yep. Uh, how do you convince them that this is the way to go? Yeah, I've got the perfect picture in mind, Leon, because I had to work with my dad on it. And, and he is in his 60s running a, running a successful little accounting practice down in Adelaide. The, the, the reality is two things. One, the generation of uh, new staff to accounting profession are obviously the younger generation. And it's rarely that it's not often the partners and the senior people of the age you're talking that are actually doing the back office compliance or, or transactional work. They grew up doing that, and now that they're at a level of a, of a partnership or a senior manager, they've got someone younger. So first of all, the younger generation coming in, far more technology savvy, and that certainly helps uh, the, the conversation. So, so the, let's call it the, uh, the baby boomer generation. They, they actually look at it and say, well, well, I've got people underneath me who understand this technology and doing the work. The, the, the way we would help them is... That's the key. Do they understand the benefits of cloud? Do they understand the benefits of some of this latest technology? And if they do, we work with whoever in their team is best and best empowered to, um, I guess, make that transition to use the technology. The other thing I'd say is that we don't, we're not saying that cloud is for everyone today. Uh, we, we very much have a desktop hosted and cloud methodology for partly exactly the reason you just mentioned. Some of the practices we work with say, actually our preference is to use these applications that are running localized on my clients' uh, accounting files. I don't trust this thing called the cloud. I don't need to change. I'm running quite a successful business. We'll continue to service and support them. But that transition to the cloud, then then we work with whoever in the practice is the right one. And, and often that ends up being the younger Generation Is the resistance partly suspicion of hackers? And I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the media. Mm. And personally, I think it's a bit overblown. But nonetheless, there's a lot of stuff about stuff getting stolen, bank accounts getting hacked. Yeah. Is that a principal problem you've got? There, there is a fear there. There's, there's no question. I think it's fear of the unknown. Um, let, let's, 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 let's delve into that. It's cloud. What is a cloud? It's a big fluffy white thing up in the air. So, so where is my data? How am I accessing it? Who's got access to that? Who else can hack into it? If it's just sitting on my local home PC, I feel safer. I can actually see that hardware device. Now, the reality is cloud technology with security and encryption and everything is actually probably safer than that home PC. That's the truth. But perception is reality. And, and there certainly is a fear there of of, of cyber crime uh, where is the data and we have seen examples of that i mean i'll jump now probably five years ago i would say but i remember um and maybe it was sooner but but virgin blue i think someone hacked their system they they went down so so no plane could take off not because they had a plane hardware problem because the system went down right and and you've had debacles like for example target in america yep and you know that that sort of stuff. I mean, but this is this is where it becomes interesting because the stuff with Target happened with third parties. Yes. Now, what protections can you put in place 
to reassure accountants that everything is safe. Yeah. I'll be going out of my technology depth to, to try and answer that. Other than we work with the, the, the top level of data centers, they call A1 data centers. And these guys work with security, encryption. I mean, even to get in there, the reality is even in my position, I'm not allowed to walk into that data center. It's fingerprinted. In fact, the biggest risk, just to give you an example, to data centers is internal um, hacking, whereby a cleaner or something actually gets in. That's, that's, that's easier to get into rather than cyber hacking to get in there. And we only work with the best and we work with Australian A1 data centers. The, this, there's another point there, and that is um, the data is held in Australia on a data center here or does, is it distributed? Correct. At the moment, all of our data is held in Australia and not distributed. Not to say that we won't one day look at a distributed model whereby we could get efficiencies and scalability by distributing worldwide, but I can guarantee today all of Reckon's data is held in Australia and only distributed in Australian data centres. And that's common with the big banks as well as small business. To be honest, I don't know with the big banks. No. Uh, but I do know with us, we are. Yeah. Very much. One last question, and this is, this is the interesting thing, is how do you see this cloud model changing accounting? Excellent question. One I think we touched on, access to information in a more real-time space. Um, I think, don't mean to be cliche, it's making accounting cool. So I think for years, people were going to uni saying, no, I don't want to actually go and become an accountant. Now they're saying, look at the amount of business advice, the amount of different businesses that I can work with, with cool technology that could be on my mobile, on my Apple laptop or anything like that. The other thing is it's definitely making them more efficient. I link back to another comment I made. Accountants have always wanted to get client data faster so they can add more value. And cloud is a real enabler of that. So it's making accountants more efficient so that they can either go home on time or do more value add and therefore grow their accounting businesses. Or they could take the work home with them. Exactly. Or take their work home with them. Glass of red and uh, doing your client's books at home. And add a premium to their service. Definitely a premium to their service in my view. Sam Allett, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, yep, the cloud is uh, hanging over us all, isn't it? So now we're going to economist Jonathan Boimel of RMIT, and he's going to talk about the housing boom. That's, he's going to be talking to us about the housing boom and whether that will substitute for the downturn in mining investment. So let's have a chat with Jonathan Boimel from RMIT. Jonathan Boimel, there's been some pickup in housing and construction. Is that a good sign for the economy that it's taking over from mining, the downturning in mining? Look, well, the construction industry in Australia, and particularly in New South Wales, um, has seen some significant growth, um, and this has fed through into uh, employment. Um, so we've got high levels of home building activity, again, particularly in New South Wales. This has flowed through to the to the sector's workforce. Um, we've got some skills shortages in particular trades. And I guess this is important when we're in a process of transition from um, mining activity into, uh, into what we hope to be, to be uh, broader-based growth. Um, it doesn't address all the challenges that we face, obviously. We're going to see a large decline in capital spending by the resource sector. Um, and we've already seen um, some declines. Um, the timing of the recovery in, in uh, non-mining capital spending um, and non-mining activity more generally will be, you know, will be particularly important. At the start of this year, um, in March quarter of 2014, we saw some pickup in 
in growth. The question is, how sustainable is this? Uh, we know that the results owed a lot to the substantial rise in, in resource exports. Um, we're unlikely to see this as a sort of sustainable source of growth. So again, yes, the need for more broader-based growth, um, in part coming from, from the construction sector, is is important. But again, the, the, the activity there was really centred um, in, in New South Wales, um, and the employment impacts, again, fed through in, into, uh, into New South Wales. So how sustainable is that pickup in construction? I mean, is it enough to offset the decline in mining investment? It's interesting because this feeds into the, the interest rate story, right? So interest rates are historically very low. From last August, right, we're seeing record low interest rates. Interest rates are doing what they should be doing, and that is increasing the prices of, of riskier assets um, like housing. Higher prices in in the housing sector encourage more construction. Um, so the question is, of course, for how long will we see our relatively low interest rates? For how long will we see these relatively strong um capital gains in housing, that has, has an impact on, on construction activity, the future path of, of construction activity. Look, from my perspective, though, this is, is not going to be enough to, to fill the gap. We know that the exchange rate at the moment, the Reserve Bank has, has referred to it as being you know, uncomfortably high. Now they're just referring, it, referring to it as, as high by historical standards. Unless we get a, a drop in the exchange rate, there's going to be more pressure on the domestic economy, and that is we're going to need to see an internal devaluation, that is a squeeze on costs, a squeeze on wages to boost exports in order to, to fill, the, to fill the, the mining gap. So again, it really depends what's going to happen on, to the exchange rate. If the exchange rate falls, um, this will complement the boost in, in construction activity, and we're not going to need to see an internal devaluation, a squeeze on costs, uh, a change in business models domestically. But, I mean, what is the likelihood of a drop in the exchange rate? It's, it's, it dropped a bit a few months ago. It's back up now and uh, very high, it's, you know, and it's, it's uh, moving up towards parity again. Where do you see the exchange rate going over the next 12 months? Look, that's a good question. Look, given, given the strength in exports that, that uh, Australia is, is still seeing, given the strong levels of foreign investment that we're seeing in Australia, given the hot money um, that's, that's um, cycling around, uh, around the world, um, it will be surprising if we see the Australian dollar falling um, to level that that um, we would need to see for the manufacturing sector to rebound, for example. Um, so the exchange rate, I don't think, is is going to do all the, the heavy lifting. I don't think we're going to see a fall in the exchange rate to the extent that, that we need. We know that the, the banking sector, in fact, has been doing quite a bit of heavy lifting, and that by that I mean they've been reducing interest rates by more than... The RBA has been reducing interest rates. Um, so there are areas in the economy that are, that are doing some of the, the heavy lifting because we're not, uh, we're not getting that from, from uh, the exchange rate. But yeah, we, we do need to see more broader base growth. Um, the construction sector in and of itself certainly won't, won't fill the gap. Some politicians seem to be putting a lot of store by the prospects for agribusiness and aquaculture, uh, but that's not going to solve the employment problem, is it? No, I mean, there might be areas where we'll see 
uh, industry-specific growth, and that's that's all all good and well. These areas, though, aren't particularly labour-intensive, and we know that when you know when we talk about the labour market, even though unemployment is hovering around around five point eight percent, we know that we've got a drop in the participation rate. That's not just because of the ageing of the population. We know that we've got people who are discouraged workers, those who are only marginally attached to the labour force. We know that's a particular issue for for uh, younger members of society. And I think the uh, the official unemployment figures really understate the, the number of jobs that we need to generate as an economy to get the unemployment rate down. So it's the, so the more labour intensive industries where we, we do need to see uh, do need to see growth. Back on uh, the question of interest rates, I mean, the, the speculation is interest rates will go up next year, if not towards the end of this year. What impact will that have on the housing construction market? Interest rates have already been doing what they need to be doing. The concern, though, is that consumer confidence is is still a significant issue. Um, If you take a look at surveys, people still think that paying down debt is the best thing that they can do with their savings. And that's in the face of, you know, of record low interest rates. So for construction activity to to take place, um, we need these elevated prices. Um, For how long prices will be elevated and for how long the RBA will be happy to sit back and see these prices being elevated is, is another matter. We know that the governor of the RBA has already expressed concern about Sydney house prices. And in his speech in, in Hobart, it was quite interesting because he, he mentioned that um, in the setting of interest rates, the board of the RBA does not ignore what is happening to housing prices. And I found that a very interesting comment. So how long they'll stay on the sidelines in the face of elevated prices is something that we're going to need to watch. And that then will definitely have an impact on the future path of house prices and then the future path of, of construction activity. The other interesting part, of course, is that uh, the investment in housing construction is now very different from what it was, say, 10 years ago. We have more foreign investment, uh, particularly from Chinese investors in Australian real estate, and we have the super funds. How much is that driving the uh, housing construction market and the prices? Well, we know that... Um We've had a really significant contribution um, by foreign investors um, in new dwellings. Um, we also know that super funds uh, are playing a significant role in financing new construction. Um, so that does tend to break the nexus to some extent between domestic interest rates, um, the cash rate that the RBA sets, the overnight rate, and the future path of housing prices. Um, so... Yeah, it's a it's a very very interesting situation. Even if the RBA was concerned about a bubble in house prices emerging, um, the effectiveness of their interest rate lever on the future uh, path of housing prices is is not as significant as it as it used to be. Simply because of the the financing of construction now compared to let's say five years ago or, or ten years ago, as you, as you suggested, it's coming from a very very different place, which is would not be as sensitive to to interest rate, domestic interest rate settings as, as as it used to be. Do you expect that to continue? That's a very good question. I mean, it does depend on, on what happens um, domestically in the Chinese economy. Depends what happens to, to rates of return on a range of, of other assets, um, both offshore and domestically. But yeah, it's, it is it is difficult difficult to know. But we are in a very different world when it comes to the financing of, of dwelling construction. Um, compared to where we were only only a few years ago, and much of that would be driving the 
growth in dwelling construction now that we're seeing in Australia. That is correct, particularly um, when it comes to high density construction, medium density, high density construction. Um, Foreign investment is certainly financing a lot of that. Jonathan Boimel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, yeah, one of the problems, of course, as Jonathan says, is the housing prices, particularly in in, uh, New South Wales and Sydney. That's right. And it's a very, very different market, as he says now. Uh, It's not moving with interest rates because a lot of it's coming from overseas investment and from super funds. Yeah, exactly right. Super funds have got to find somewhere to put their money and property is one of it, particularly high-rise stuff, as Jonathan points out. And uh, the Chinese, of course, have got a lot of cash and uh, they're looking for somewhere safe to put it. So now, Leon, the news. First of all, Gary, there's growing evidence the Eurozone's recovery has slowed alarmingly. German industrial production plunged in May at its sharpest pace in more than two years, suggesting that Europe's biggest economy has struggled to expand in the spring after a robust first quarter. Industrial production Production in Germany dropped 1.8% on a seasonally adjusted basis, according to the country's statistics agency, Destatus. And the April figures was also lower due to a decline of 0.3% from a previously released rise of 0.2%. And as a result, economists at Barclays now expect German gross domestic product to have expanded just 0.1% on a quarterly basis between April and June. And that translates into annualised growth of 0.4%, which is down significantly from the first quarter's 3.3% annualised rate. Now, the worry here, Gary, is that without a vibrant Germany, the 18-member Eurozone is going to struggle to expand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Germany's the cash cow for, well, it's just supporting the whole of Europe. Well, it makes up 30% of a bloc's GDP. It's the region's second biggest economy. That's right. And, you know, the the euro is, of course, a huge support for um, Germany's industry, making their products a lot cheaper. That's right. And, and look, and France has struggled in recent quarters. Spanish production has also fell from previous month from 0.7%. Spain is the Eurozone's fourth biggest economy. So that's a, that's a big worry. It is a big worry. Uh, a lot of it comes down to confidence. You've got the uh, problems in Ukraine. You've got the Middle East with stashes going on again, uh, you know, between Palestine and Israel. You've got the Iraqi situation. It's, uh, it's all a bit unsettling. Very unsettling. And uh, that's why Christine Lagarde has hinted that the International Monetary Fund might be preparing to cut its global growth forecasts and she's warning that a pickup in economic activity could prove what she says less robust than expected and there are depressed levels of investment. Now, the head of the Washington-based IMF says that efforts from central banks to accelerate recovery in the global economy might now be finding their limits and she's urged governments to inject a booster shot by increasing investments in areas like infrastructure, education and health. Pretty well motherhood stuff, you know. Where else would the government um, invest a lot of money? That's right. But uh, but the worrying part is she's saying that uh, growth is not going to be as strong as expected. And that is wor- that is actually a worry. It is indeed. I mean, right across the Western world, you've got uh, this uh, consumer sentiments down. You know, there's conflicts about the places. It's unsettling. In China, economic growth is remaining in a reasonable range, according to the country's central bank. Um, Price levels are largely steady, and it suggests monetary authorities are comfortable with the economy's uh, current pace of growth. And policymakers will use different monetary policy pools in a flexible manner and keep liquidity and credit 
growing at an appropriate pace, according to the People's Bank of China. They said that on a on a statement on their website this week. Now, the Chinese economy expanded 7.4% on year in the first quarter, and economists expect growth to have stabilised in the second quarter. But still, it faces headwinds from an ailing property market and credit risks in the financial sector, Gary. The shadow banking worry, the, the debt there is enormous. We don't exactly know how big it is, but everybody knows it's huge percentage of uh, GDP and uh, yeah there are cracks appearing and they've got to keep control again. And meanwhile London's century old gold price fixing which has been tainted by rigging scandal and attacked by critics as old fashioned is gone under the spotlight this week because key talks are aimed at modernising the process. It's actually quite antiquated Gary. The benchmark gold price is set by four banks at 10.30am in London and 3pm via teleconference and the banks of Britain's Barclays, HSBC, Canada, Scotiabank and Society General of France are all members of the gold fixing company and they agree on the price twice daily and just like the old coffee shop days of the insurance that's right and but but of course the system lurched into crisis this year when barclays was fined after an ex-trader at the trouble bank admitted trying to manipulate the gold price and uh, they've been fined billions of dollars by regulators as have other banks for foreign exchange rigging and so that's prompted this review of how global financial benchmarks are set it's interesting because there's no american bank in in that cartel no 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 but it, you know it's it, it suggests that the um the gold price fixing process is open to abuse it's a very comfortable old um you know like like a white's club in london you know. that's right now uh, meanwhile uh, uh, companies here have um uh, shrugged off the sharp slide in consumer sentiment since the federal budget. Uh, business confidence has increased in the past month. The closely watched National Australia Bank monthly business survey shows sentiment improving, despite but fears the budget would mean consumers were reluctant to open their wallets. Consumer sentiments has dived to its lowest level in three years in the wake of the May budget, but business have remained relatively upbeat and the NAB survey shows business sentiment has lifted one point to an index level of eight, which is quite significant. It means the optimists outnumber pessimists and uh, business conditions have moved into positive territory, lifting three points to an index level of two during the month. Yeah, and if um, Uncle Clive Palmer gets his way, um, people, you know, the, the, a lot of the cuts that uh, the Abbott government were going to make uh, look to be very much in peril. Well, yes, but, uh, you know, consumer confidence, um, according to the uh, Westpac Melbourne Institute of Insects of Consumer Sentiment, that lifted by 1.9% to 94.9%. That's higher, but it's still very low. And then, of course, you've got this inquiry into the unions and threats of strikes, uh, threat of strike in Australia Post, and a few other things could, you know, shake uh, consumer confidence again. Meanwhile, uh, Clive Palmer appears to have blown a huge new hole in the Abbott government's budget, saying he'll vote against coalition plans to abolish a school kids bonus, a low-income superannuation guarantee, and a bonus for welfare recipients. And that's at a total cost of $9 billion. He's also demanded the government back his dormant emissions trading scheme to win support for its direct action legislation a scheme that he'd previously declared to be dead. And within hours of his three senators being sworn alongside other new senators, Parman announced that contrary to his previous declaration that direct action was a waste of money, his senators and that his senators wouldn't vote for it. His senators, he now says his senators will support the legislation if the government backs Palmer alternative zero-raced emissions trading scheme. A lot of horse trading to go on yet. He says if the government doesn't remove the measures from its mining tax repeal bill, that is the um, the low-income superannuation guarantee, the bonus for low-income earners and keeping the last tax cuts, 
he would combine with Labour and the Greens to consider the measures separately and then vote them down. And meanwhile, the Abbott government has suffered an embarrassing setback in its bid to fast-track repeal of the carbon tax through Parliament, with the Senate rejecting a government move to, uh, to force an urgent vote on its legislation. And the vote turned on the vote lost turned on the vote of the Australian Motoring Enthusiast Party, Senator Ricky Muir, who split from the Palmer United Party by voting with Labor and the Greens. Ricky Muir's actually, I listened to some of his maiden speech, uh, he's turning out to be a bit of a dark horse. He's a lot sharper than uh, you know the the Canberra establishment uh, assumed he would be. Well, yes, uh, Ricky Muir has come out and saved the two point five billion dollar Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and that that's quite stunning. And uh, so uh, you know, who would have known that this motoring enthusiast, yeah. uh, you know, who enjoys uh, roaring through uh, the forests in his big four wheel drives would uh, would support that? I know he is to say he's he's a very dark horse. This one, and meanwhile. Of course, um, business is very concerned because Australia's climate policy is in limbo because the Senate is due to abolish a tax, but the government has yet to support secure legislation to support to legislate for its direct action plan. Australian industry groups says the entire business community is frustrated at the prospect of yet another policy vacuum on climate change. And that's only going to increase business uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got Ernest Willock saying at the, at the Australian industry groups is saying this is no good at all. Meanwhile... Uh, we go to Australia's relations with Japan, and Japan has enlisted Australia in a special relationship involving an expansion in trade and military links. Japan, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visited Canberra on Tuesday to sign a free trade agreement, New Deal to transfer defence equipment and technology. It's the first bilateral visit by a Japanese leader in 12 years, and comes a week after Mr Abe announced a reinterpretation of his nation's pacifist constitution to allow Japanese armed forces to come to the aid of a friendly nations under attack, because yeah. previously their constitution only allowed armed forces to act in self-defense and indeed the uh, japan has a, a significant navy and and army well yes but it's it's a bit of a worry that uh, you know here was uh, tony abbott uh, talking this week about um he he talked about uh, australia admired the skill and the sense of honor that the japanese brought to their task and oh. and you know I, that, that is, they brought to their task when they bombed Darwin. Quite, and, and they built the Burma Railway. And built the Burma Railway and, execu- and executed Australian soldiers. Yeah, and why on earth say that? I mean, okay, you've got the Prime Minister of Japan there. Japan had lost the war and has reorganised itself as a very respectable nation. Why on earth recall the war upset the RSL, for goodness sake, upset China? Yeah, well, there goes the old diggers vote. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Julie Bishop has come out and uh, with a tougher stance against China. Basically, she's saying uh, the coalition government uh, says it's been a mistake for previous governments to avoid criticising China for fear of causing offence. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think there's justice in what she says because the Chinese are very fond of taking the high ground on this and objecting to any criticism, whatever, and mostly their response has been a load of rubbish. But the the worry is that China is Australia's biggest trading partner, That's and right. it means Australia is taking sides if there is any potential conflict between the US, Japan, and China. Yeah, and that's and that's a worry. That is a worry because it draws us into into that conflict, as you say. Uh, but quite clearly, um, America supports Japan. We have um, still with the American alliance, and to some extent, I guess we're stuck a bit with that. But it requires a lot more, a lot more delicate diplomatic work than than we've shown so far. 
Definitely. Now, on the positive side, our job advertisements have bounced back after spending cuts and tax hikes announced in the federal budget weighed on business hiring intentions. Job ads rose 4.3% in June. There was a 4.5% bounce in internet job ads, and uh, according to the ANZ uh, job ad survey. And that, that's quite significant. And also, activity in Australia's construction sector expanded for the first time this year in June, according to the Australian Industry Group. Uh, because housing has picked up, and that's uh, that follows on from our conversation with Jonathan Boymel. However, comma the wild card in that lot is um, what's going on with the uh, inquiry into union uh, activities, the prospect that John Setker of the CFMEU may face criminal charges. That's going to lead to all sorts of problems. Meanwhile, though, uh, the AI Group's performance of construction index rose to 51.8 points in June. That compares with a read of 46.7 in May. Meanwhile, the final the Abbott government has held off tabling its watered-down financial advice rules in the Senate because it's using the coming days to lobby the new, lobby the new Palmer United parties for, to support its proposals. And Labor senators took the unusual step on Tuesday to try to table the Abbott government's future financial advice regulations, saying the Senate needed them to be introduced so the entire chamber could consider whether or not to disallow them. But the coalition refused, leaving Labor to accuse the government of wanting to give lobbyists more time to work on Clive Palmer and PUP senators. Yeah, I'm not sure working on Clive's are likely to produce any results anybody will like. Well, yeah, I mean, the amended financial advice laws have fallen into disarray because Palmer says he'll never support them and the government needs to support Palmer to get its amendments through the Senate. So it has until next Tuesday to table its regulation changes. They're in strife. Absolutely. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, next week we have... Jeremy Crook. Uh, he's the Managing Director of Critio and he's going to be talking to us all about digital advertising. So that's it for us this week. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, have a safe week and we'll talk to you next week.